Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter. You're on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. If you're looking for a short and punchy companion piece to my new book, The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised, then you are in luck. Look no further than venture capitalist Mark Andreessen's new mega essay, The Techno-Optimist Manifesto. If there's a sentence or even a word that Mark wrote that I disagree with, I have yet to find it. That's why I'm so delighted to have Mark Andreessen, a founder and general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, as well as the co-author of Mosaic, the first widely used web browser and co-founder of Netscape on this special episode of Faster Please, the podcast. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jim, how are you? Great, great, great. One selfish thing I really love about the Techno Optimist Manifesto is that it affirms to me that my new book, The Conservative Futures, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Are Promised, which you nicely blurbed, got the big things right, especially that what we believe about technology and our ability to use it wisely and productivity matters. Indeed, the main thrust of the manifesto, and you can correct me if I have this wrong, is promoting a substantive optimism about technology and economic growth as forces that can improve people's lives and society overall. It advocates embracing innovation, markets, societal ambition, and human achievement as ways to create material abundance. But an obvious question, you're busy. You're 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 the co-founder and general partner of a large VC firm. Why is it a good use of your time to write and talk and promote the ideas contained in the manifesto? Like what is the expected return on investment here? Yeah, so, you know, look, I, I kind of, um, I alluded to this, you know, at the, at the beginning of the manifesto, which is, um, you know, if you if you go back in history, if you go back, as I'm sure you have um, many times, if you go back to the particularly this the the first, but also particularly the second industrial revolution, you know, sort of the period of 1880 to call it 1940, when you know a huge amount of the modern world that we all have today, you know, everything from electricity to you know cars and you know just you know, t- your telephone and you know all these things that we we take for granted today, you know that that's when those things really happened. Um, if you read the accounts of what it was like in that era, people had a tremendous uh, level of faith um, and confidence in innovation uh, and in you know say uh, technological creativity, uh, business creation. Um, you know, and look, there were huge fights along the way. You know, there were huge fights with the, you know the quote unquote robber barons and, and and so forth. But you know, by and large, there was this like funda- fundamental belief in what what you might call progress with a capital P. Um, and that's that's captured in a lot of the fiction of the time, but also you know a lot of the nonfiction. You know, even even um, you know even critics of, of of capitalism were very excited about technological progress at, at that point. Uh, in fact, a, a big argument for communism actually in that era was that you had so much technological progress coming that you could finally make communism work. Um, and you know, I just think basically the world we live in today is not that world anymore. It's sort of the post 1960s you know baby boomer world. Um, you know, in which there's you know sort of this suppressive cultural blanket. You know, that's kind of been coming down on top of, uh, you know, people who have been, you know, genuinely trying to create new technologies and create new businesses. And there's this sort of, you know, what I, I call it in the manifesto, sort of a demoralization campaign mm-hmm. um, where there's just like a tremendous number of, and, and, you know, primarily I would say like outside observers or critics, but, you know, it, the press, <laughs> governments, uh, you know, think tanks, nonprofits, activists, um, you know, just uh, politicians, just a, a huge number, of, by the way, big company executives who maybe have ulterior motives. Um, there's, there's just a huge number of people who are sort of actively trying to demoralize people, trying to build things, uh, and trying to create things. And, you know, look, our, our, our founders feel this, like, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do something new. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's even harder when basically people are telling you that you're bad and evil for trying. Um, and so I, I finally, you know, with, with, with the way I write is, I don't know about you, but I, I, I just might, I, I, the way I write is I sort of wait until I reach a boiling point where I just like simply can't take it anymore. Um, and then I like, you know, slam, my slam my pen into the desk and, and decide it's time to put it on paper. And so that, that, that's basically what happened. You know, because, you know, uh, uh, my book and the, and your manifesto really hit many of the, uh, same themes, uh, right. 
the fortunate part of that is that I, I I can just sort of ask you all the questions that like I've gotten asked, especially the more hostile ones. And this this is one I've gotten by people who just you know uh, just don't agree with with the thrust of the, that argument. They'll say, "What well, what do you what do you mean? There's not like." techno optimism i thought we were the techno optimist country we love smartphones uh we look for technology for answers i mean it hasn't we you know we have silicon valley i mean how can you not how can you say we're not a techno optimist country we seem to be the most techno optimist country yeah so look i think there's a lot of truth to that um and this is something that we talk a lot about inside the tech industry which is um a couple things so one is you know it's it's always important to try to figure out what people think it's always important right to disambiguate between the things that they say and the things that they do right and so it's like you know polls and surveys on the one hand and then what social scientists call revealed preference on the on the other hand which is actual behavior and so you know these things always important to disambiguate those and i think if you if uh, both of those if you look at revealed preference uh you know you 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 alluded to this um real preference, like people love this stuff, right? Like people, you know, everybody's like, I mean, this is the ultimate sort of irony of all the critics of tech is that they're all like tapping away on their iPhones, posting yeah, on Twitter, yeah. right? Like going on YouTube, right? You know, so, you know, driving, by the way, driving cars. Um, and so, um, you know, the reveal, reveal preferences, like people love this stuff. I mean, we, you know, we we live in a world today, you know, to, to your point, we live in a world today in which, you know, more people in the world have smartphones now and, 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 and broadband mobile access, uh, you know, that have access to electricity and running water. So, you know, so there, there, yeah, so there, there, there's a big reveal preference thing where, where people love this stuff. And then, and then even in the polling, it's actually very interesting. If you do kind of mass polling, um, and then both Gallup and, uh, and, uh, was it, um, Edelman, uh, do this, uh, for, uh, kind of trusting institutions, uh, you know, over time, uh, actually big business and big tech actually polls very high. Um, and I think it's in the Edelman trust survey where big tech is, is the, actually polls the highest of all the, of all the sectors of business. And of course, you know, big business out polls almost every other kind of institution, um, and so, you know, tech, tech, and, you know, I remember Edelman actually, the, the guy who runs it kind of came and said, you know, you guys have a huge crisis a few years back, you know, when people started to criticize tech and I looked at the numbers and it was like, I forget the exact numbers, but it was like trust in big tech had fallen from like, you know, 72 to 70 or something. Right. Like, right. <laughs> like, you know, any other, like, just imagine how excited Congress would be, right. If they were polling at 70, right. Cause you know, they pull it like whatever 15, um, and so the what, the way I would describe it is there's sort of a separation as there often is in these kind of cultural, political, societal things. There's a separation between kind of the people uh, or the masses, right? Where, you know, by and large, actually, people are actually quite optimistic and quite happy. Um, and then the elites. Uh, and of course, you know, what, what my manifesto was very much aimed at, you know, I mean, everybody's obviously free to read it. But, you know, the the the, the critique that I specifically make is, is of our elite culture, uh, not our mass culture. The good news is it's not our mass culture. The, look, the bad news is the elites really matter, right? Because the elites are the people who set policy. You know, the, the elites are the people who decide what's in the media. The elites decide, you know, what shows up in our fiction, in our aesthetics. You know, the elites are in a position to get people fired. The elites are in a position to cause, you know, progress to stop. Like, you know, the news, you, you probably saw this, like the, the you know, the, the, the SpaceX Starship rocket, right? Which is like one of the most important new innovations, you know, on the, you know, in, in our civilization in the last 50 years. You know, which which you know, which offers for the first time the 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 sort of potential for sort of infinitely re reusable you know travel to and from space. Uh, you know that thing is currently held up on the on the launch pad for you know what looks like might be months um, because you know elite bureaucrats have decided that it threatens you know some particular kind of bird, right? Like it, you know, no, nobody ran a nobody 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 ran. There was no vote, <laughs> right. right? That we're gonna that we're gonna make that trade off. But you know, there there's a bureaucratic class in this country that is very anti tech and very anti change. Um, and so they're holding up that and they're, they're attempting to hamstring, you know, many other areas of technology right now. Um, so I, I think it's important to address them directly and, and talk about them directly. Yeah. You know, progress has been made. I mean, the, we'll call the period since 1970, they call it the great stagnation. In my book, I call it like the great downshift, but I would rather live today than in 1990 or 1980, 1970. So sort of what was lost? I mean, what does the world look like? If we had kind of a, a never ending 60s or a never ending late 90s, like what is that gap between where we are and where we could be if we had a more optimistic culture, you know, supported, you know, that and policy both supporting each other? Yeah, you know, this is that, you know, this the framing here, right, is that sort of classic Bastiat concept of the seen and the unseen, right? And so, you know, it, you know, we, we do see the progress that has happened. And of course, you know, there has been progress, obviously, the Internet and, you know, computers have had a lot of progress in that time period. 
Um, you know, and then, and then of course, you know, the, the, this goes to the conversation about risk and why things slowed, but, you know, we, we see risks, um, you know, and then what we don't see is exactly to your question. We don't see the, you know, the things that have been lost. Right. And, and, you know, you, you kind of have to decide with these, with these questions of, you know, kind of whether you care about those things or not. Um, you know, I, like my, my view is the things that are lost, um, that you don't see are, are every bit as important as, as everything that you see. Cause like you, it's, it's opportunity cost, which is, which is a, a form of cost. It's real, you know, it really affects people's lives. Um, um, and so, yes, I mean, look, the scorecard sense in the last 50 years is, I think, pretty clear. Um, so one is just uh, statistically, numerically, uh, productivity growth downshifted in the economy, right? And so it right. sort of in, in, in the sort of second industrial revolution and then all the way, you know, sort of post-World War II through the uh, through the sixties, you know, it was growing at a significantly higher rate, you know, multiples, you know, you know, something like double uh, the rate of productivity growth in the economy versus basically, you know, sort of since 1968 or so. Um, and so that, you know, there was, there was a definite downshift, um, you know, you, you, you disambiguate that obviously by sector. And basically what you see, the, the way I think about this is what you see is, you know, the, the sectors in which innovation has been allowed to happen have, you know, leapt ahead. Um, and the, the two things that have happened in those sectors is very rapid productivity growth because of innovation. And then the other is, you know, very rapidly falling costs, right. Uh, which then ripples through to prices for consumer goods. And of course, you know, as, as I'm sure you point out also, but um, you know, if a, if a good falls in price uh, as a consequence of technological change, that's the equivalent of everybody getting a raise, right. That's, that's a rise. In, in, in real incomes. Um, and so, you know, there are sectors of the economy, um, you know, like, uh, you know, tech and, and, you know, your television set on your wall and, you know, your streaming media and your, and so forth, you know, video games and so forth, where, you know, that has taken place. Um, against that, you have other sectors that are much larger. Um, and I would, you know, say over time, extremely foundational to, to, to quality of life. And these are sectors like healthcare, education, housing, uh, by the way, government, I would say, as an economic sector um, and everything sort of attached to it. Um, and those sectors have experienced, you know, profound technological stagnation to the point where, they're, you know, they're, I don't know if, whether this has been measured, but they're, I think they're probably going backwards. They're probably uh, experiencing uh, reduced uh, productivity over time, right, due to due to administrative bloat, right, just like enormous numbers of, of right. people doing email jobs, which and then, of course, the result of that is far higher prices. Right. And so and so this is where you get you get these incredible paradoxes of where things sit today, where, you know, a four year college degree for your kid is, is on its way to a million dollars um, and a, and a hundred inch TV, you know, that covers your entire wall. Right. And looks spectacular that you can watch, you know, Netflix on all day long is, is, is on its way to a hundred dollars. Right. And it's like, OK, like, you know, is that really like, is that really <laughs> is that really the optimal, you know, kind of distribution of innovation? Is that really the world that we want to live in? Um, and if, if current trends continue, that's exactly what we're on track for. So you know, people have pointed out to me, they're like, well, we had we've had this, you know, this information technology revolution. Uh, are, I mean, are, are you suggesting that we wouldn't have had it under a different sort of policy regime, whether it's different regulations, different government spending on um uh, R and D, everything you read about now, whether it's you know possible breakthroughs with fusion or generative AI, and there was just this huge you know CRISPR advance where we might have found a cure for sickle cell disease. Like, what has been lost by not having those advances in 1995 instead of 2023? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, you know, look, Charles Babbage almost got the computer to work in whatever it was, the 1870s or something. Um, you know, uh, the, um, there, there was actually, I've been, you know, this artificial intelligence kind of thing is happening now. Um, you know, there was a big debate in the 1930s as to whether computers should be modeled after basically calculating machines, in which case they would be sort of hyper little, hyper literal and do math really fast, or whether they should be modeled after the human brain. You know, the first neural network uh, paper was actually written in 1943. The architecture of chat GPT is, is, is still, is basically based on that paper from 1943. You know, like, you know, these ideas pop, you know, surprisingly early. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's a question of how fast you get the payoff. And then, and then of course, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a question about what have you lost? You know, what have you not achieved? You know, what one lens I would put on this um, that I didn't mention in the essay, but I think is, is relevant to your question is, um, you know, it, it, like the innovations in the second industrial revolution, you know, the, the car and, you know, the railroad and electricity and, you know, nuclear power. Uh, you know, these were things that were like big, right? You know, the spaceships, right? Airplanes, yeah, right. you know, the Concorde, um, you know, th these were things that were large, right? You know, the, the Hoover Dam, like these are things that had like physical force and presence right. in the world. 
um, you know, Richard Feynman, uh, you know, who, who, uh, who, uh, was in the, uh, of course in the Oppenheimer movie was one of the, one of the key guys in physics in the 20th century. You know, he said this thing kind of around the turning point, um, you know, where, where people started to really shift their thinking on innovation. He said, he said, he had this famous uh, talk where he said, there's, uh, there's lots of room at the bottom, you know, basically by, by which he meant, there's actually a lot of innovation that can actually take place. You can actually take place by actually making things smaller and, you know, splitting the atom was an early example of that. Uh, you know, it turns out, of course, in the computer revolution, that's been the key to the whole thing, which is Moore's law basically is shrinking transistors, right, to the point now where they're at like whatever, two nanometers, um, right? And then you can pack, you know, billions of them or trillions of them on, on ships. Um, and so basically what's happened is, um, you know, Feynman was right. There's plenty of room at the bottom. Um, innovation that has taken place in microchips or in fiber optics or in software or in algorithms or in data, right? Um, you know, that it's it's sort of this, you know, it's it's either so small you can't see it or it's immaterial. And so I think we got this like 40 or 50 year run where I think a lot of people kind of they weren't threatened by it because you know, like it's easy to get threatened by a you know a massive airplane or a big you know dam or something. It's it's much harder to get threatened by a, a microchip. And so I think I think we actually sort of got a free pass for innovation in microchips and software, you know, because they were were in some sense either tiny or or, or, or immaterial. You know, look, the, the alarming thing I would say that's happening right now is, you know, the same kind of fear mongering that took place around atomic power and took place, you know, on many of the other technologies that have, you know, really slowed down or stopped in the last 50 years. Like that same kind of fear mongering and, and um, you know, kind of emotional hysteria, uh, sort of anti-tech hysteria is now being applied into into computers uh, and into software. To me, it's it's sort of stunning that um, that that we're sitting here, you know, we have these debates about climate change where it's obvious that if we had coast to coast nuclear <laughs> reactors, maybe small ones, maybe future reactors, we would be having a very different debate. And yet the exact same kind of, in some cases, the exact same people who are against nuclear are now also saying we need to pause. We need to pause AI. We need to heavily regulate it. And to me, one of the, the, the one of the, the, the the bits of the essay that really pops out when when you suggest that slowing down AI is really tantamount to causing profession, uh, preventable deaths. And it's a line that has bugged some people. I think they think it's an extreme line. So, you know, I I think it's, I, to me, it's like an obvious truth, but defend that, defend that line as a way of sort of making your case for, you know, uh, you know, accelerated AI, not, not, you know, you know, not squashed AI. Yeah, well, you know, let's use talk by analogy for a moment. Talk about you know atomic power, right? And so, you know, exactly like you said, you know, atomic power. Like, so Richard Nixon did two two things relevant to to energy in the early seventies that really mattered um, in the history of this. One is he declared something called Project Independence, where he said we need to build a thousand new nuclear power plants in the U.S. Uh, domestic uh, plants by nineteen eighty. We need to become completely independent, you know, energy independent. We need to go completely electric, um, right? And so that would have been accompanied by a, a shift to electric cars, right? I mean, look, electric cars are a hundred year old. Technology. Right. And so that it's a great example of, of something you're talking about that we could have had a lot sooner. Um, and he said, look, like we need to, we need to get self-sufficient. And then not only are there environmental benefits to this, um, but um, you know, there's geopolitical benefits. Like we need, you know, this is what will get us disentangled from the Middle East. Um, and then we won't need to be sending, you know, our, our kids over there anymore in, in these, you know, in these wars. Um, so on the one hand, he said that, of course, on the other hand, he created the nuclear regulatory commission, which then prevented that from happening. Right. And the nuclear right. regulatory commission didn't approve a new nuclear power plant for, for, you know, for 40 years. Um, and so, you know, and then, and then, yeah, look, if you're on the left, you could basically say, yeah, this, the, the, Everything that happened in carbon emissions in the in the developed in the developed world over the last fifty years was completely preventable. Um, you know, we could be in a, we could have a zero carbon electric grid today um, with at, at least as much or more power than we have. And you know, we we chose not to do that. And we're still continuing not to do that. But you don't even need to get into climate change to kind of you know justify that on a morality basis. You just look at the you know globally. You look at energy production, and you know you 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 probably know the answer to this. What's the number one cause of environmental death worldwide? Right, energy production death. Um, it's people burning biomass in their own homes, right? Um, and so millions of people die every year because they're burning wood or other other some form of biomass inside their own homes. They're getting poisoning from the smoke, and they and their their kids are dying. Um, and so there's like mass death happening all over the world as we speak by virtue of the fact that we have not rolled out you know modern energy everywhere. 
Um, and, and like, and it, it just an absolutely staggering level. Now, of course, that's hard to see because like we're not sitting in the village watching, you know, somebody die in their in their hut because they're, they're they're burning wood. But but nevertheless, it is real. In a very similar way, you know, the advances in medicine, you know, that are not taking place today because we're trying to hold back AI. You know, for, for you know, for me again, on the on, on the according to the principle, of the seen and the unseen. You know, th- those those preventable deaths are every bit as severe um, and important as as actually people you know picking up a gun and shooting somebody. When I say that it's it's the same arguments, and in some cases it's the same people and organizations, what I find you know surprise you know stunning really I guess not surprising is that not only are some people worried you know about these you know AI will increase inequality you know cause job loss it, you know it will kill us but they're saying you know what even if you think it's good it just uses too much energy we cannot afford to have AI everywhere ubiquitous. You know uh, that everyone will have access, like they do a smartphone. It, it's it's the exact same argument that we are running out of everything. We are running out of energy, and thus we need to stop. We need to retreat. And I'm wondering if you think that these arguments will continue, will have traction going forward, as they apparently have had for a half century. Yeah, well, I would argue that even longer, right? I would even argue this goes back 100, 120, 140 years. Like, I, I think you can trace this mentality back to communism. I think you can trace it back to Fabianism. Um, you know, it's basically the, and again, it's sort of this elite driven thing. And it's sort of this elite driven thing that basically, basically at the heart of it is sort of civilizational progress as we have understood it is like fundamentally, fundamentally evil. Um, right. And, and, and you, you can sort of hang whatever sort of instance you want on that. You know, lots of, by the way, lots this comes up in foreign policy, lots of foreign policy issues, you know, get hung on this, um, you know, about how, how evil American involvement is in various issues, you know, around the world. Um, you know, uh, you can hang this on, you know, there's lots of economic claims, you know, the, uh, on the evils of capitalism, you know, despite, you know, sort of a, a obvious proof over the last 150 years that capitalism is the engine to bring people out of poverty. Um, you still hear, you still hear the opposite. Um, and so I, I just, you know, when, when, when it comes down to it, I kind of turn to my, my Thomas Sowell and, and, uh, you know, kind of his great book on, on this topic, which is, uh, a, com- a, a conflict of visions, you know, where he, he talks about. Right. Where, where he talks about the, you know, he, he's kind of he kind of wraps the whole thing up in a way that made it at least easy for me to understand, which is, you know, look, there, there's just fundamentally two visions for how the world plays out for how society should be ordered in the modern modern world. And one is the constrained vision uh, in which, you know, humans are fallible, you know, are, are fallible, imperfect, uh, flawed. Um, and, you know, we try to be practical and we try to, you know, make change in the margin that, that makes things somewhat better. And then there's this sort of utopian, you know, what he calls the unconstrained vision, which is there's this, you know, theory of a fundamentally, you know, kind of, you know, revolutionized world in which everything will be fair and free and equal, right, and wonderful, you know, kind of post the revolution, right? Um, and post the revolution, you know, capitalism will be gone and, you know, technology will be, you know, purely wielded by the selfless state on behalf of, of the people. And, you know, you won't have any more war because you'll have a global government, you know, you have global authorities in charge of everything. And so like that, that you know, that, that that's been the battle sort of capitalism versus socialism over time. That's been the battle of authoritarianism versus, you know, with sort of proper capital L, you know, kind of liberalism. That's been the battle of you know tech stagnation versus uh versus innovation um you know kind of every step of the way and 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 i and i and i broaden it out to that level because i i you know by what you're saying i think is right which is like basically it is amazing how these ideas line up like it, it's amazing how it, it's amazing how predictive it is like if if i know your opinion on nuclear power like i basically know all of your other political views um right, right. you and really so- don't need to poll are our, our, our people are people tech optimistic are they future optimistic you really just have to ask them what do you think about nuclear power and you're you're about 90 percent of the way yeah. there yeah on, by the way on issues that have nothing to do with technology you're 90 percent of the way there yeah. right you, you you can also you can predict their views on israel and palestine from that right <laughs> like <laughs> like with almost complete you know with almost complete perfect certainty right Social i mean security t- reform you're really you're, yes. you're all the way you're all the way there so so uh, i think so so really right like it's a conflict of visions like it's a, it's a very deep and profound and powerful conflict of visions and it, it and and the, for, for that reason these questions need to be engaged with seriously and at depth uh, because th- these aren't about the individual technologies there, there's a deeper question of the ordering of society but certainly i think that uh and i wanted to sort of maybe get a little bit later into some of the criticism but one but one criticism is that it's just the opposite of what you're saying right here. You're the one with the unconstrained vision that you're that you're outlining this sort of techno utopia that if 
only there are no regulations and people like yourself are the driving force in society at all levels that we will create this, you know, utopia of everyone will be living to 300 and we'll have mastered the solar system and there'll be no, there'll be no tears. There'll be no suffering. And if only we have unconstrained techno capitalism and you're, you're the, you have the unconstrained vision. How do you respond to that? Yeah, so I use this this wonderful term from uh, from the economist Brad DeLong, um, who I don't agree with on everything, but he's he's on this. I think he got this term exactly right. He uses the term slouching towards utopia, uh, right? And so it's, it's sort of his description of capitalism is sort of slouching towards utopia. And right, what, what does that mean? It's like okay, like yes, there there is some vision out there of a better world. Now, by the way, in my case at least, not a vision of a perfect world, right? But a better world, right? But then the, the, I love this, you know, this term slouching, which of course is from I guess probably what the slouching towards Bethlehem kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, slouching towards utopia, which is like, look, like we're not perfect. right? Like we we are deeply flawed. And by the, by by we, I mean, like every one of us as human beings and humanity, then look, by right? humanity, you know, and then but most more specifically, look, technologists like, you know, we're we're deeply flawed also. Right. Um, and the technologies we build are deeply flawed. Like, the, the, you know, we, we do not live. This is part of part of the difference. Like we my view is we do not live in the world where we get, you know, capital U utopia. We do not live in the world where we get perfection. We do not live in the world where we get, you know, people with perfect motives. You know, we do not get live in a world in which, you know, a single global government is going to make all decisions, you know, in a wise and kind way. Like, you know, we just we just don't live in that world. We live in a world of imperfection uh, where we can slouch towards utopia um, by making, you know, basically small changes, uh, you know, sort of on the on on, on the margin. Uh, the, the other great term on this is Tyler Cohen's term, right? Marginal revolution, right? Which is, is you know, the title of his blog. And, you know, it, it's it's the same. It's the same concept. It's like, OK, right. You know, it's the revolution on the margin. Right. It's like, OK, like, you know, we may have big long term goals, but like change, actual, actual effective change actually happens on the margin. And of course, you know, why does that make sense? Is this because like, look, you know, somebody's got to like at some point sit down and write computer code. You know, somebody's got to sit down, you know, with the slide rule and like right. design the Apollo rocket, like right. some fallible human being is doing this. And so, of course, there's going to be fallibility throughout the entire process. But nevertheless, nevertheless, you know, these are the things that we can do. Uh, uh, on AI in, in, in particular, it seems that most of the focus has been on fallible technologists and what they're and the and the potential risks from this technology. So, what would you want policymakers to understand about the potential and risk about AI? Yeah. So look, I would say all, all new technologies bring risks, right? So all, all new technologies, this is part of not being utopian, right? All new technologies bring risks. And I was, you know, I would start with like fire. Right, which is like you know the, the the sort of opportunity and risk on 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 the the harnessing of fire, right, is so deeply encoded into our kind of civilizational memory that you know the Greeks had a, the myth of Prometheus, right, and of course you know the the myth of Prometheus was you know Prometheus is sort of a god who brings mankind fire, and and you know in revenge you know the the bigger the you know the bigger god Zeus uh, chains him to the. Um, or whoever chains him to the rock and has his liver pecked out by a bird every night, and then it regenerates so he can be tortured again the next day, right? And if you think about like what's encoded into that myth, it's basically the same argument we're having around AI, which is like, look, you know, fire like is wonderful, right? Um, which is like, wow, it can like keep us warm, it can keep us safe. Like, you know, the first thing that you do if you're in the woods is you build a fire, it's how you keep the wolves away, it's how you cook food, um, you can use it as a method of defense. Um, uh, but look, like it, it get fire gets used as a weapon and got used as a weapon, you know, when it was literally just you know people with wooden sticks and it gets used as a weapon today in the form of you know munitions and and you know atomic bombs um and so you know look these you know technologies technologies are double are double-edged swords um you know look th th there's just two very different ways of going about you know kind of processing that basic fact you know one is sort of the mentality that we had you know again during like the second industrial revolution up until probably 1960 you know which was like look like we're, we're going to harness the good and we're going to deal with the bad right but like we're going to move forward we're not going to like cower in fear right we're not going to like you know we're not going to renounce fire and sit in the dark and the cold because we're worried about you know how bad guys might use it like you know we, we technology is a tool we are in charge of the tool we are going to you know step up and figure out how to use it for for the good things and how to how to mitigate the risks and then you know look since the 1960s 1970s you know the the sort of world of policy <clears throat> around this has sort of gotten it's gotten you know increasingly consumed by this idea called the precautionary principle um and you know either people actually literally cite this or or they behave like it um even if they haven't heard heard of those that that term which is basically this idea that new technologies should not be allowed to exist unless they are proven to be harmless um better safe than sorry Better safe than sorry, and of course, the, of course, what what that is 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 a universal solvent to uh, you know sort of you know prevent all new technology. 
Um, right. Cause you can, you can always make the argument. You can always make the harm argument. Um, and so, and, and again, th th this to me is like, this is a very big reason why we, you know, why productivity slowed down. Um, you know, this is a very big reason why prices in so many areas of the economy are exploding. Um, uh, it's becoming harder to, you know, have a middle-class life. It, you know, this, this is, you know, why, you know, this is why we don't have all electric and all electric nuclear power, you know, grid today. And it's, it's that same mentality that's being applied to AI. And of course it's, it's every bit as, as big a mistake for AI as it was for, for anything else. So what, I mean, what is, what is the upside? I mean, I, I realize that the, the essay is not just about AI, it's about technology more broadly, but like, is is this technology, generative AI in particular, in these large language models, will it be as important as like the PC internet combo? Is it would be as a, some some something greater? Like what really is like what really might be lost if we screw up the regulation of this of this technology? Yeah, look, it's the introduction of you know machine intelligence and and and, and machine intelligence and intelligence define the way we define intelligence as as human beings, right? And, and, and look, it's it's not you know these are not this, the analogies here are a little bit dangerous because you know the, the the machine neural network is not the same as the brain neural network, the human and, and so forth, and so there there are big differences here, but like. But there is this universal idea of sort of intelligence, right? And, and, and intelligence in humans and intelligence in terms of AI, basically what it means is the ability to solve problems, right? It means the ability to basically, you know, sift through large amounts of information and do the kind of composite, you know, kind of synthesis that you do when you're trying to figure out, you know, how to solve a problem. Um, you know, whether it's a small problem, like how to schedule your day or whether it's a big problem, like how to, you know, uh, you know, develop, you know, infinite <laughs> electric power, um, right. Um, it, problem solving. Um, and, you know, look like, you know, human beings have like in general done very well over thousands of years by being, you know, quite good at solving problems when we really apply ourselves to that. But we are fundamentally limited by our own, our own intrinsic capability, our own intrinsic levels of intelligence. Um, you know, the opportunity here is basically a step function upgrade in human intelligence by by basically joining the human and the machine, right, in, in a symbiotic relationship. Um, and so the opportunity is to take, you know, every uh, drug, you know, uh, developer um, and every, um, you know, cre creative artist of any kind, um, anybody trying to think through any kind of problem um, and, um, you know, giving them a, a new kind of tool that they can work with that gives them a much, you know, greater chance of solving the problem or gives them the ability to solve problems we haven't even thought of yet. Uh, so, you know, th th this is this is potentially the big one. Like th th this is the big one that could basically drive everything else uh, in the years and decades ahead. Um, you know, you know, maybe that's Mark, right. Mark, people. I've been waiting. My Listen, my whole life, like we're about the same age. Our right. whole lives have been spent during the great stagnation, the great mm -hmm. the, the great downshift. Like I have been waiting for this right. technology to accelerate like everything broadly throughout the entire economy. And I was allowed to get excited about this for about 15 minutes last November. And then I was told, uh, listen, it's going to take all the jobs. And after it's done taking the jobs, it's going to kill us all. And that has been sort of the crux of the debate, just, just how dangerous this technology is. And it, it's, it's, it's enormously demoralizing. Yeah, it is. Although, look, like I said, like, I, like, this is reflective of a deeper worldview. Um, and look, and some people who like have the anti AI are spreading the kind of anti AI hysteria now, like some of them are actually true believers in kind of the deep worldview. Um, and, you know, like we said, like, you, you could predict their their kind of views on, on many other areas of, of topics of politics and society, and, and, and be probably, you know, properly horrified. Um, you know, look, there, there are other people who just are getting caught up in it because it's like the, tra the trendy thing of the moment. And they're just kind of saying what they what they think the smart people are saying. Um, look, I, I think it's important to get this stuff on the table. Right. I, I think it's I say, it's important to lay this stuff out. It's important to actually like get, it's important to actually get the arguments. It's important to actually hear from the people, you know, who are making especially the most inflammatory claims. Um, you know, it's important to actually explain what this technology is. Um, you know, it's it's important to actually give people who haven't thought hard about this the information that they need to be able to you know reason this through themselves. Um, and so, yeah, like it's, it's like, I'd rather not go through this, but, um, you know, I will say like, like I will say, you know, for every person who's demoralized right now, there's somebody else who's becoming radicalized. Um, <laughs> right. Cause they're, they're like, oh, you know, I, I talk to people every day where they're like, oh, I see what's going on here. Right. This is not actually, you know, they're not actually like this, that, and the other thing, what they're actually doing is trying to get special advantage for their company. Right. Or what they're actually trying to do is to like push some other political angle or, you know, boy, you know, this, this person actually just seems like basically emotionally dysregulated. You know, these people seem like hysterics like maybe these are not the people we should be listening to uh, but is it do you do you find it at least with people who are in the industry who are who have been talking about these existential risks that it's you know is it is it more a case of them trying to you know you know 
create a regulatory capture situation or a regulatory environment that they can navigate, but smaller companies or companies yet to be born can't navigate and they're going to cement their incumbency. Is it that? Is it a true concern that this these technologies will get out of control? Is it a little bit of both? I mean, what's your sense of it? Yeah, so there's this great framework in economics uh, called the the, ba- the Baptists and the bootleggers. Um, and it's sort of this idea that when you get basically one of these sort of risk you know, kind of call it risks or prosecutions or whatever, people coming at something and trying to ban it or make it illegal or control it like this in the regulatory sphere, um, you know, through basically, you know, fear, fears, sort of fear-driven uh, political action. Basically, what you what you find routinely over time is a coalition uh, of what, what they call Baptists and bootleggers. The Baptists and bootleggers were the two blocks in, that were in favor of alcohol prohibition 100 years ago, right? And it was sort of the Baptists were the true believers, you know, that really believed that alcohol was evil and was destroying society. And then the bootleggers were the people who stood to make a fortune if the alcohol was made illegal because then they could smuggle it in and they'd be the only supplier, right? And and and, and in fact, what happened was, right, prohibition actually, it, it actually worked. Prohibition actually cre- it created what we consider to be modern organized crime in the US because uh, it gave this you know huge economic gift to the to the bootleggers. Uh, and so basically you see this pattern over and over again. If you read the Wikipedia page for for the for Baptists and bootleggers, right. they give you like you know 30 different examples of right. this over time. Well, now we have 31. Now we have 31. So that's what's happening in AI, um, which is you have a set of people, you have a set of Baptists. Like, so you, you have a set of people who I'm positive or true believers. They really believe what they're saying. You know, and the, look, these tend to be writers, you know, and kind of, you know, science fiction, you know, kind of oriented people. Um, and, you know, they, they paint these like very vivid pictures of, of you know, doom and, and death and all these things. Um, uh, and, and then look, you've got the bootleggers. The bootleggers in this case, of course, are not people who are going to make bootleg AI. Rather here, it's sort of a, just a straight grab for regulatory capture. Right. And it's sort of a straight grab to have these governments basically establish a set of regulations, you know, similar to what Dodd-Frank did in the banking industry, where there can only be two or three or four companies total, you know, total that are going to be able to scale the regulatory wall and then everybody else gets frozen out. And then those companies have a permanent cartel. Uh, and, and, you know, and look, this is a pattern that has repeated over and over and over again in our economy. You know, many, many sectors in our economy have been through that. And you 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 know them because you see the cartels. You know, and anytime there's two or three or four companies that have a total lock and there's no no startup innovation, like 100% of the time, there's a regulatory barrier. Uh, and so, so what's happening is the the Baptists are being used by the bootleggers, right? So the 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 the, the fear the, the the people who are like legitimately afraid um, are are being used basically as a front uh, by you know big by basically a small set of big companies and CEOs who are who are going for the regulatory capture. I think this is obvious. Like it's it's playing. I mean, it's playing out today. It's playing out this you know quote UK quote unquote AI safety summit. Right. Like it's 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 playing out in plain, plain sight. Like I like I, I don't. Nobody's even really hiding. They're just kind of doing it. Um. And so um. You know, my my hope is by describing it, more people will become aware of what's happening. Uh, what I mean, one one criticism uh of of the manifesto, and uh, as one as one critical article put it, it's a hodgepodge of bad libertarian economics and the particularly the section that inspired sort of that attack is when you wrote and i quote productivity growth powered by technology is the main driver of economic growth wage growth and the creation of new industries and new jobs as people and capital are continuously free to do more important valuable things than in the past now what this writer uh referred to as libertarian economics that passage you could find uh in any college textbook describing the fundamental mechanism by which poor countries stop being poor. And I'm wondering if a lot of the criticisms are, 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 are by a, a media that just doesn't know very much about economics and probably knows even less about how business works. I mean, I, when I, when I, when someone says something I disagree with, I, I could think, well, they're, they're bad or they're dumb. It's usually they're dumb. And this, instance seems like someone who just doesn't know very much about how uh, how an economy works. Yeah. So, well, first I'll, I'll play guilty to hodgepodge, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, not to the, uh, not, not to the rest of the criticism. Right. Um, yeah. Look, you know, look, there's, there's a couple, yeah, there's a couple of things going on here. So one is like, look, like uh, some people have observed that like a lot of what I wrote actually would have been, you know, the Clinton Gore Democrats in the 1990s would have been fine with yeah. it. Right. Like it, you know, th- th- it was not that long ago. And basically it, this is sort of the feeling that I had when I was writing it, which is, wow, I am saying things that are radical today and were con- totally conventional normie 30 years ago. Um, right. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're, you know, which I, I, th- I think just, you know, says a lot about, you know, kind of the, the shifts in the culture over the last, over the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, look, as you well know, like, look, understanding economics is both critical, but very difficult. Um, you know, the, the problem with economics is that it's, kind of, you know, ma many of the most important ideas in economics, which are, you know, kind of very clearly true for people who have looked at them in detail, um, and for which we have 300 or, you know, 500 years of evidence to support them. Um, you know, they're, they're counterintuitive, right? Um, and so, and you could start there with like Adam Smith's idea that you are basically exploiting self-interest, uh, in order to get people to do pro-social things. In a capitalist economy, you know, comparative advantage. Um, you know, one of the things I do with people when I start talking about, you know, they start bringing up economics is I ask them to define the difference between competitive advantage and comparative advantage. You know, that's like really important, <laughs> and, and, right? And almost nobody can like explain the difference. Um, you know, another is basically I ask them to explain what sets wages in the economy. And, you know, what I, what I get back is almost always a Marxist argument of, you know, it's basically, you know, whatever, you know, worker voice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's whatever work. workers. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's whatever the conventional answer, right? It's basically it's whatever workers can pry away from the evil capitalists, right? And 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 you know, and then I, I walk through like the idea of like setting wages by marginal productivity, and then you know the fact that an employee who's getting underpaid, you know, can can go in you know, a free market goes to a, a different uh, a different gets hired to you know up to his level of marginal productivity by another employer. Right. And so, and so, and, and actually, you know, I don't know, but it's, it's almost like a little religious experience when, when people actually wrap their head around how this works, they actually, you know, can come out the other side being like, oh my God. Right. Like, and, and then, and then the very second thought is why did anybody tell me this before? Um, and so I, I, I kind of think this is one of those things where like, it, it's, it's always going to be an uphill struggle like this, like the, uh, Brian Kaplan, um, uh, once did this thing where he kind of bent my brain. He said, uh, he, he said, um, you know, he looked at all the political polling on, on, on sort of, you know, mass political views on, on economic topics. And he basically, you know, they're sort of disastrous, right? It's like, he said, like the, the, the median, what does he say? The median American is not, is, is no Nazi, but he is both nationalist and socialist. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so what, what, what yeah. Brian says is actually, it's a miracle that we live in as free market, uh, a system as we do, uh, given how bad people's intuitions are on these economic topics. Uh, yeah. And, and look, I, you know, people need to decide whether they want to learn these things or not. And if they do, like, I think we should try to explain it to them. And if not, you know, we'll, we'll yeah, we'll have to figure out how to, well, how to deal with them anyway. Well, I mean, one critique I, I, that I found super frustrating was um, uh, Ezra Klein's uh, column uh, about, about the manifesto. And in that column, it's a column where he calls you sort of a, a reactionary a futurist, but that he referred to everything that you've been talking about, like this sort of the, like this, this, this change in attitude uh, that, you know, you know, policies, you know, government making policies that seem to be just not even care about the impact on innovation and growth. He called that he kind of hand waved it away as an overcorrection and then wanted to move forward. I sense there's just a lack of serious contemplation about what went wrong. And I find, I just find it hard to believe that we can move forward if we're just going to dismiss all these errors the past as a slight detour. Because I, to me, we're all, again, we're already seeing them repeated with AI. And I mean, I mean, can we, I mean, how do we move forward if, again, we're refusing to acknowledge what went wrong? Uh, and I, I guess, like, what are the next step forwards? Like, what's next? I always enjoy. I need to say, I always enjoy Ezra's Ezra's work because uh, he's he's so smart, and I, I I sort of think of him as like the Zeno's paradox of like of of, <laughs> of sort of thinkers like this. Like he's always getting that much closer to the truth. <laughs> like right. he's almost there, right? He's so close, <laughs> but he he never quite gets over over, over the hump. And so uh, uh, well, that's what's frustrating because I feel like well, he's somebody like I could you know like I you know I he's you know he's center left. I'm I'm on the right, but I can work with him on like nuclear energy like on housing density and then i read that column and i think i maybe i can work with him but i'm not sure he wants to work with me he's so close and so the, the piece that he wrote that i actually recommend to a lot of people um i actually hand that i hand this out as much as i can he, he wrote he wrote this amazing piece about the chips act uh about a year ago um you know this is sort of pro, this industrial policy program by the government now to fund new new chip plants in the u.s um, and and it, the title of the piece is spectacular it's it's he says the problem with everything bagel liberalism um, and basically, and he documents in the piece, the piece writes like something I would have written, you know, if I had had, if I had had the time and energy and talent to, 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 to do the work that he did on it, um, where he basically goes through like all of the policies and restrictions and rules and regulations and prohibitions that are being hung on building these new chip plants. Right. And so like, it's not enough to say we're going to build new chip plants in the U S it's not enough to say the government's going to pay for them, you know, but you know, the workforces all have to have the perfect, you know, diversity balance of like, you know, the 
chemical engineers involved. Right. Um, you know, the, you know, whatever birds nests nearby need to be, you know, very, t- you know, carefully taken, if, you know, that, the, it, you, you know, everything needs to be unionized. Like it, basically, basically the, 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 and he, he's criticizing his own side on this, right. He's basically saying like, look, you know, basically, and he actually, it's actually funny. He interviews actually the, the commerce secretary. Um, and he basically, you know, kind of hangs her up in the interview kind of on this stuff um, and kind of gets her on the record uh, and basically says, look, like we being sort of liberal progressive Democrats who want these chip companies, chip factories to get built in the US and we want industrial policy to work, like we have to not attach every other part of our social political agenda to these things or the entire thing will grind to a halt, which is, of course, exactly what's happening, right? Like that—that that is, if you look at what's happening with like the chips, that's, that's like precisely what's happening. Of course, those plants are getting built. Um, of, of course, it's impossible to do chip plants in the US. You'll never get approval. It'll never get through environmental review, right? He's, he's 100% correct. And so he's, I it's just, I find him so fascinating because he's like, yes, like he totally understands, like there, he gets it, like he totally gets it, right? And then like a week passes and he's like, yes, but no, it's the capitalists, that the, the, you know, it's the capitalists, it's the greedy capitalists that are the bad guys, right? So <laughs> he, anyway. he momentarily forgot that market capitalism is problematic and got to <laughs> Exactly, right? And then he spends the next six, mu- six months atoning for it. Um, and so he, he's, yeah, he's the fun one. You know, he, he's the, he's the, inter- he's the interesting, he's a very talented guy. He's, a, he's the fun one to read yeah. on that because he'll walk right, you know, most, most, most of his peers will not get anywhere near the line. He'll walk right up to the line and he'll like, you can see his like tippy toe is like edging right towards the line. And then he'll just be like, ah, nope, can't do it. Uh, finish up here. Why do you think writing this manifesto will not prove to have been an utter waste of your time? I mean, yeah. looking back a decade from now, if there's no need for a manifesto 2.0, what probably went right? And if there is a need for such a document, what probably went wrong? Yeah. So look, I, I think two things. I think, look, one is like, uh, 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 you know, using this this philosophy of sort of slouching towards utopia or change happening on the margin. Like, look, a, a big part of this for us and for me was it's it's the individual entrepreneur, um, you know, is the target for this. And so it's the, you know, I always envision the 22 year old, you know, wrapping up their, you know, whatever degree. Um, and they're thinking about, you know, look, do I go, you know, what do I do? Do I go work for the government? Do I go work for a big company? Do I, you know, start something, get my friends together, you know, rent a garage and like, you know, try to start, you know, the next, the next Google or the next Tesla. Um, and so, you know, a, a big part of this is basically just reaching out to that next generation and, and, and basically giving, you know, kind of giving them, and, you know, part of it's the intellectual arguments, but also, you know, quite, you know, part of it, I, I sort of, you know, I, I really kind of amped up the, <laughs> the feeling on this one. Right. Um, you know, to basically give people a sense of like, um, you know, kind of energy and, um, you know, ethics um, and, you know, frankly, morality um, and emotion, um, you know, that this direction is actually uh, actually a really good one. Um, and, and look, I, you know, I don't need to get to, I don't need to get to every kid graduating, you know, university. I don't need to get to even every entrepreneur, but you know, if the right, you know, if, if the, if, you know, if there's another dozen Elon Musk's out there somewhere in the next, you know, decade and I get to them, you know, then, then the whole thing's worth it. Um, and then look, the other thing is like, look, there, there are people in policy circles, um, you know, who, who are thinking hard about these things. Um, and you know, there's, you know, I, I, I've gotten a bunch of uh, positive feedback. I, I actually tried hard in the thing to make it bipartisan. Um, so I, I tried to actually not make it, you know, kind of overtly right wing. I tried to make it, you know, kind of even handed and I, you know, I could, we could, we could talk about that, but um, you know, I've gotten positive feedback from a, a bunch of Democrats. Um, you know, again, it, it kind of, this kind of harkens back to the, you can read this as sort of Clinton Gore economic policy if you want to, right. So it kind of harkens back to a position that actually the democratic party is in the past. It's been, you know, pretty, pretty reasonably comfortable with, and there are still Democrats running around who believe that. Um, and then look, quite frankly, on the right, you know, people on the right are maybe a little bit, you know, tend to be a little bit more pro-free market, although, you know, not always. Um, but, you know, look, there's a lot of, you know, distrust and fear towards, you know, tech and the tech industry right now, you know, on the right in Washington for, you know, different reasons. Um, and so also, you know, articulating, again, kind of a positive vision where people on the right can say, oh, these tech people are actually trying to do good things, um, I, I think on the margin probably helps. If it just briefly, what do you think are like the the, the strongest tailwinds that make you confident that we're not going to have another, you know, another, another 50 years of not achieving what we could like, what, what gives you that confidence? Is it, is it, we're worried about China? Is it worried? Like what, 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 what's the, what are the tailwinds out there? Well, we probably will have another 50, 50 years. Well, well there we go. That's <laughs> well, you know, it's yeah, going to be this it's getting, it's getting, keep, keep the expectations low and then we'll yes. easily exceed them. Right. <laughs> Further proof. I'm not a utopian. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, look like well, what, what gives you at least mild confidence that maybe we'll squeak through and do it. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, look, uh, look a bunch of things. And so, look, like the the last fifty years is is it, like the, look, it's been a boomer. The, the the political environment in the U.S. has been do- dominated by boomers. Just a you know, st- you know statistical, you know, kind of reality. Um, you know, one one of the bizarre things I'm sure you notice all the time. But you were born what year? Uh, I was born uh, 1967. Okay, so you're like, yeah, you're um, you're you're basically square Gen X, or maybe you know, like we're right on the bubble. Yeah. Uh, you consider yourself Gen X? I. Yes. Yes. I'm not, yes. Mark, I'm not a boomer. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Good. Good. See? See? Exactly. I, we're, we are both Midwestern Gen Xers. That's the way I like to think about it. Yeah, exactly. So th- this is the thing. And so that like there's a weirdness happening right now in, in our society, which are like the boomers are hanging on. Right. And of course, you see this in national politics right. very clearly. Um, and you see this in many other areas of, 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 of sort of, you know, so the society, the, bo- the boomers are hanging. The boomers are such a giant demographic wave and then they're just they're just not giving they're just not letting go of power but like at some point they're not going to have power anymore you know look when that happens you know i think basically the millennials just like take over right because they're they're the other sort of mega generation in the other side of that and so i guess my my pessimism would be that like we're, we're gonna we're, the next 50 years are gonna be dominated by the millennials in the same way the previous 50 have been dominated by the boomers like that's not great um so so that that's the kind of that's the headwind look you know like i said against that you know, look, a couple things, which is like one is like, look, we, we like I said, we don't need to get to everybody like, you know, the change happens in the margin, the, the you know, the innovators, you know, a very small number of people can have have an, have an outsized impact. Um, you know, the, the elite, the, like the elite idea is is a double edged sword, because on the one hand, when you have elites that want to like stop everything, they're very effective, even if that's not really what the broader population wants. On the other hand, like you don't need that many, you know, Elon Musk's to like really fundamentally upend things. Um, yeah. And so. You know, there there is there there is this sense there are a lot of very talented Gen Xers out there. There are, I would say, a growing number of millennials um, who are basically, you know, figuring out that something has gone wrong. Um, and then look, Gen Z is coming. Um, and I think Gen Z is going to be kind of my, my theory on Gen Z is it's going to be kind of schizophrenic. There's going to be like half a Gen Z that's going to be even like more extreme than the millennials, like, and they're going to be like seriously like out there um on things. But I think there's going to be uh, another big part of Gen Z that's going to just think that like all the millennial stuff is just basically deeply uncool um and kind of stupid. Um, and there's going to be a big rebellion um back in the other direction, which is you know what tends to happen um uh you know generally. And so I think there's going to be a lot of incredibly sharp Zoomer entrepreneurs coming up here and engineers. And, and you see you see this in tech. It's happening right now. We, you know, we meet them now every day. You know, the 20, 22, 24-year-old founder, where they're they're just like not whatever is the catechism of the guilty millennial, like they're just not yeah. doing it. Um, and so you know, look, I, I think we're gonna, I think, I, I think there's there's you know, the the the, the human capital um, you know, uh, on this is 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 still tremendous. And then look, you, you know the all the other things like you know, Contra. Contra all of the, you know, kind of, uh, you know, ne- ne- negative things like, look, you know, the, the English speaking sphere and then particularly the U.S. is still the beacon, uh, you know, for 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 high school immigration. It's still where all the really talented people from all over the world want to come. Okay. Don't want to lose that. Right. Exactly. And like we, we don't like we don't. I mean, you know, look, you know, we, we have our, our immigration politics and we have all the all the stuff that's happening. But still, like, you know, look, there's only four countries globally that have uh, routine inflows of high skilled immigrants. There's only four. It's us, UK, Australia and Canada. Like that, that's it. It, it. It's not happening anywhere else in the world. And, you know, I, I certainly don't see any reason to think that it's going to happen anywhere else in the world. Um, and so, you know, we're going to continue to have that going on our side. Um, and so, um, yeah. And then look, uh, these technologies built the other, the other maybe reason for optimism technologies built on each other, right? Like there, there's a, there's there, we call the, this, this idea of the stack, but there's like a laddering of technologies. And so you get these technologies like the microchip and now AI and the internet and, and, and people come up with like, you know, thousands of new ideas for how to build on top. Um, and in particular, like AI is a big one, uh, in that category. And so it's going to be a tool that, uh, I think, uh, sharp people are going to be able to use to, you know, potentially, uh, cause very dramatic change in a lot of fields. Uh, Mark, uh, outstanding, great stuff. I appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jim. A pleasure.